as you remain standing. If you have your copy of the Word, I encourage you to go ahead and open up your Bibles. I know in the liturgy, I have listed, I think, what is it, 2 Kings chapter 23. We're going to back up. We need to read that particular passage in Scripture in its context, so go ahead and get comfortable. We're going to back all the way up to the beginning of chapter 22, get a running start at this, continue past this, and even pull a little bit from the New Testament. So take up your Word of God and hear now the Word of God. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's, mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscoth. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And it came to pass in the eighteenth year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaiah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house, unto carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand, because they dealt faithfully. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found a book in the, of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the house hand of them that do the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakam the son of Shaphan and Achor the son of Milkiah and Shaphan the scribe and Esahiah a servant of the king saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book, to do according unto all that which is written concerning us. And moving on to the beginning of chapter 23. And the king sent, and they gathered unto them all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with them, and the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and with all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. 
And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priest of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all of the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them into Bethel. And he put down the idolatrous priest whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem. Them also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the other planets and to all the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem unto the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and stamped it into small powder and cast the powder there upon the graves of the children of the people. And he break down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord, where women wove hangings for the grove. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah that defiled high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba, and break down the high places of the gates that were in the entering of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city. They were on the man's left hand at the gate of the city. And then turning with me, if you will, to the New Testament, to the first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonian church, chapter 2, we'll read now verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, hallowed be your name forever and ever. In your perfect wisdom, you have revealed yourself to your people through your holy word. As we come to the preaching of your word now, we confess that far too often we diminish the importance and veracity of Holy Scripture. We confess that we rely on man's wisdom when we encounter difficulties and we judge matters based not on the truth of your word nor in the manner prescribed by your word, but according to the unsteadiness of our subjective feelings. We confess that we are easily distracted and often struggle to enter fully into your worship. We confess that we hold glorious truths and doctrines from your word in our minds and even speak them with our mouths. And yet so often we fail to take these truths into our hearts and so the fruit we should bear is anemic or altogether missing. We are weak and we are a needy people. Help us, we pray, and forgive us these and all our sins. Meet with us, O Lord. Grant us faith that we might worship you in spirit and truth. By the wonderful working of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts now to receive that which you have revealed for your own glory. Turn our thoughts heavenward as we consider the things of our great God who is in heaven. This we pray and ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Before the service, Wayne caught me walking around with a stack of papers about this thick, and he wanted me to assure him that that was not the message today. So we're, we're good. It's not quite that long. I appreciate your concern. As we consider this passage from 2 Kings and 1 Thessalonians, I'm compelled 
to let you know and to explain to you that this message is not an exegesis of the text I just read. That would be what we're used to, and that is a very good thing in the way that most preaching should be done. But rather, I would like for these texts to serve as a picture in your mind and to provide a backdrop, as it were, of a godly king's response to finding and reading and hearing God's holy word. I would like for us to come away from here being able to pray with thanksgiving that which Paul spoke of the Thessalonians. Finding, reading, and hearing God's word changes the heart of God's people. Repentance and righteousness become once again possible. And on the other hand, losing, ignoring, and mishandling God's word entails grave consequences. Therefore, we will let this historical vignette of King Josiah serve as a backdrop and a touchstone for this message. But first, I think a little background to this new series I hope to pursue is, is appropriate. Over the last couple of months, I picked up a copy of J.I. Packer's Concise Theology, a guide to historic Christian beliefs. And I found myself thoroughly enjoying and benefiting from this succinct but lucid approach to summarizing the great truths in Scripture. Sinclair Ferguson's endorsement of the book captures this so well. Concise theology has all the hallmarks we have come to expect from its author, biblical and spiritual theology, tightly but securely packed, written with grace, and calculated to produce praise and obedience. It will serve equally well as an introduction to doctrine or a manual of theological terms or a devotional study. Now, normally I would rather not open up a message with such a reference to the work of one man, but I do want to be honest in giving credit to the author. I will be leveraging many of Dr. Packer's systematic categories, though not following them rigorously, and I will frequently use his phraseology. I ask, therefore, that this forenote, as it were, serve as the footnote to this entire series that I have entitled Basic Theology, so that there be no need to burden the message with footnotes at each quote. I hope you can understand that, and we can work with that. With that said, you may be wondering, why? Why a series on basic theology? You might call it bite-sized theology or Theology 101. To answer the question with a question, do we not all have an inexhaustible desire to know more about our God? Is that in your heart? If it's not, let's stir it up beginning today. Theology can be defined as the activity of thinking and meditating and speaking about God, and it is also the product of that activity. Theology is the deliberate study of God, and it can be approached utilizing several different but closely interrelated disciplines. As already mentioned, we're most familiar with exegesis, whereby we expound and elucidate the text of Scripture, and it can be seen as the foundational bedrock of all theological activity. We must exegete God's Word. Built upon exegesis, we find two other disciplines referred to as biblical theology and systematic theology. 
And when we use these terms, we need to keep in mind that they are not competing approaches to studying God's and His Word, but rather complementary disciplines. Where biblical theology deals with the data, the information of special revelation, that is, God's Word from the standpoint of history, systematic theology deals with the same in its totality as a finished product. Where the method of systematic theology is logical, that of biblical theology is historical. Building upon the work of biblical theology, the task of systematic theology is to coordinate and synthesize the whole witness of Scripture in the various topics with which it deals. And to be specific, orthodox systematic theology rests on this premise. There is a unity of Scripture and a consent among all of its parts. And this unity, it is this unity that assures us that systematics is a valid hermeneutical principle. So as we began this series of messages in basic theology, our objective is to know and believe the things of God more fully, and we will do this using a systematic approach. This is not a systematic theology class. Let's go ahead and get that in our minds. We need to root this fundamental truth deeply into our hearts, and that truth is that the ultimate goal of all theology is doxology and devotion. The praise of God and the practice of godliness. As we sit under the preaching of theology, the goal is not primarily to fill our minds with information and knowledge, but it is rather to bring greater awareness of the divine presence and to worship Him with our whole being. Although I stand before a people who are more studied in biblical doctrines than perhaps the average evangelical church member is, I think it is good to return again and again and again to the basic doctrines and truths of the faith. We are a diverse people, coming from a diversity of church backgrounds. We have been blessed with the responsibility to train up the next generation in faith and to set them on a firm foundation to teach them to love God and His ways and to trust God and His counsels for all of their lives. This is a never-ending task in anything but a set-it-and-forget-it exercise. It should be our great joy. As Paul wrote the Philippian church, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you, It is safe. We are to return often to God's Word, the font of all wisdom and knowledge, and we should love to tell and to hear the old, old story. With that introduction, we will now turn to our message for today, which is God's revelation in Scripture. And in doing so, we will consider four propositional truths that we must, absolutely must embrace if we are to begin to study our Creator God with any integrity and profit at all. And the first of these truths that we need to know is that, number one, Scripture is the Word of God. Let's do it. Scripture is the Word of God. I heard some amens. Yes, this is the foundational principle. Christianity is the true worship and true service 
of the one true God, mankind's creator and redeemer. It is a religion that rests on revelation. That is to say, nobody would know the truth about God or be able to relate to him in a personal way had not God first acted to make himself known. But God has so acted, and the 66 books of the Bible, 39 written before Christ's incarnation and 27 after, are together the record, interpretation, expression, and embodiment of his self-disclosure. God and godliness are the Bible's uniting themes. From one perspective, the scriptures, which simply means writings, are the faithful testimony of the godly to the God whom they loved and served. However, from another more important standpoint, through a unique exercise of divine superintendence in their composition, the scriptures are God's own testimony and teaching and self-revelation through his appointed human authors. The church calls these writings the Word of God because their authorship and contents are both divine. Scripture is the Word of God. Scripture does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Our starting assumption here matters a great deal. If we were to mistakenly start with the phrase or understanding that Scripture contains the Word of God, we open the door to all sorts of subjectivism, no end of errors, and innumerable heresies. It is that important. Never say, Scripture contains the Word of God. It is the Word of God. As we hold tightly to this proposition, we absolutely have assurance that Scripture is from God and consists entirely in His wisdom. And we find this truth from Jesus and his apostles who taught in his name. Beyond any doubt, Jesus, who is God incarnate, viewed the scriptures of the Old Testament as his heavenly Father's written word. A word which he, no less than others, must obey and had come to fulfill. As you recall in his temptation in the wilderness from Matthew 4, verse 4, but he answered and said, It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And in verse 7, Jesus answered unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And in verse 10, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. It is written, it is written, it is written. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Students, do you know about jot and tittle? Not even the smallest little mark in the writings that God has preserved in his word will pass away. It is preserved perfectly, and we need to found our confidence in the truth here from his word. God will preserve his word, even to the very smallest detail. And Jesus shows us that he is the fulfillment of God's trustworthy prophecy. 
we read in Luke 4, as we see Jesus teaching in the synagogue, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. When you read a familiar text like this, do you allow your mind to picture the scene? Do you allow the weightiness of what Jesus has just done and said to sink in to your understanding? Not only did Jesus rest upon the word of God as trustworthy and true, Jesus rebuked Satan with the word and revealed that what was written in Scripture was written about him. He was the fulfillment of so many things that are written. We find another helpful proof text, one that everyone is familiar with here from 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul exhorts young Timothy, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. All Scripture what constitutes all Scripture? Is it just the Old Testament that Jesus has quoted and referred to? We see that Peter sets Paul's epistle alongside Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he writes, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot or blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation." And also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking of them, these things in which are some hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Peter here confirms that Paul was given the wisdom to write And those things are part of the rest of the Scriptures. Paul, in turn, then sets Luke's Gospel alongside the Old Testament Scriptures in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, where he writes, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, Deuteronomy 25, 4, and the laborer is worthy of his wages, Luke 10, verse 7. We see then that the whole of Scripture from cover to cover from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 is the very Word of God, and we are to receive it as such. To quote from our confession, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeys, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. What Scripture says, God says. And all its 
manifold forms and contexts, histories and prophecies, poems, songs, wisdom writings, sermons, statistics, letters, and whatever else should be received as from God Himself. And all that the writers of Scripture teach should be revered as God's authoritative instruction. As Christians, we are to be grateful to God for the gift of His written Word and conscientious in basing our faith and life entirely and exclusively upon it. Otherwise, we will never honor Him and please Him as He calls us to do. But we need to acknowledge there is a particular labor in moving from acknowledging Scripture as God's revealed Word to understanding God's Word. And this labor is called interpretation, which brings us to our second proposition. In interpreting Revelation, we need to know that Christians can understand the Word of God. Too many of us come to the Word of God and say, it's too difficult. I could never understand His Word, but we have assurance from His Word that absolutely we can. In theology, this is often referred to as the perspicuity of Scripture. And isn't it odd that the, pers- the word perspicuity simply means clarity, but it's one of the more unclear words we could use to speak of clarity. What's more, when we say that we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, people sometimes get the wrong impression, that we are implying that everything in Scripture is equally and entirely clear and easy to understand. But that is not the case. We know this both from experience and because the Word of God itself tells us that not everything in it is easy to understand. Once again, the confession helps to explain what this means where we read, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things that are necessary to be known believed and observed for salvation, are so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain into a sufficient understanding of them. Those are great words, and I hope you'll understand as we turn to the confession here, these are men who have pondered the Word of God and have captured and explained and taught us in succinct ways. I, I, I encourage you to visit the confession and the catechisms often. And so the divines here, in other words, are saying that not everything in Scripture is easy to understand, but what we must understand in order to be saved and to know God is clear. Additionally, all Christians have a duty not only to learn from the church's heritage of faith, but also to interpret Scripture for themselves. The Church of Rome doubts this, alleging that individuals easily misinterpret scriptures. And while this is true, there are guidelines when faithfully observed, which will help us prevent that from happening. And so right here, I'm going to very quickly try to provide just six, six rules, six guidelines that we can take heed to as we interpret scripture. And number one is reading scripture We are to read Scripture according to its genre and intended audience. Every book of Scripture has a human author, and though it should always be revered as the Word of God, interpretation of it must take into consideration its human character. The author's language, writing style, situational context, and intended audience are all factors in interpretation. Any allegorizing, therefore, which disregards the human writer's expressed meaning or takes his words out of context is strictly forbidden. 
Is the text an historical narrative? Then we should read it as such. Is it poetry filled with symbolic descriptions? Then we need to read it as such. Is it a pastoral epistle primarily focused on addressing an error in the church? Then we need to understand and read it that way. It is admittedly difficult at times to rightly discern between figurative elements and literal elements, but that is the task of study and interpretation. And there are so many good resources to help us with that, and so we need to choose good resources as well. Number two guideline here is pray for the Spirit's help as you come to the Scriptures. Each book was written not in code, but in a way that could be easily understood by the readership to which it was addressed. This is true even of the books that use much symbolism. Daniel, Zechariah, and Revelation, for example. The main thrust is always clear, even if the details are a bit clouded. So, when we understand the words used, the historical background, and the cultural conventions of the writer and his readers, we are well on the way to grasping the thoughts that are being conveyed. Spiritual understanding, that is, the discernment of the reality of God, His ways with mankind, His present will, His present will, and one's own relationship to Him now and in the future, will not, and this is the point, will not, however, reach us from the text until the veil is removed from our hearts so that we can honor God. We need to know that understanding is the process of being transformed from glory to glory as we behold our God. That as one turns unto the Lord, that which veils our understanding is taken away. Prayer that God's Spirit may generate this passion in us and show us Himself in the text is needed. As Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and understanding revelation and knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. So we ought to pray as we open up the Scriptures and study and meditate upon them. We rely on the Holy Spirit even in our devotional study, especially in our devotional study. Third point, read Scripture in its redemptive historical context. Each book has its place in the progress of God's revelation of grace which began in Eden and reaches its climax in Jesus Christ, Pentecost, and the Apostolic New Testament. That place must be borne in mind when studying the text. We need to read the Scriptures from the Old Testament with a historical position of anticipation of the prophesied Messiah, while being able to read the New Testament, knowing, as the author of Hebrews opens the letter, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. These two perspectives are complementary. They bring consistency and coherence to Scripture, and they are in complete harmony. Fourth rule, completely submit yourselves to the consistency and reliability of Scripture. Each book in the Bible proceeds from the same divine mind. So the teaching of the Bible's 66 books will be complementary and self-consistent. If we struggle or cannot yet see this, the fault is in us, not in Scripture. It is certain that Scripture nowhere contradicts Scripture. 
anywhere. Rather, one passage explains another. This sound principle of interpreting Scripture by Scripture is some called, sometimes called the analogy of Scripture or the analogy of faith. To quote the confession again, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. We do well to hold tightly to this interpretive principle. The fifth principle is interpret and apply Scripture in its context. Each book of Scripture exhibits the unchanging truth about God, humanity, godliness, and ungodliness applied to and illustrated by particular situations in which individuals and groups found themselves. In biblical interpretation, we do seek to apply these truths to our own life situations. But here we need to take care to differentiate between illustration and instruction, between that which is descriptive and that which is prescriptive. We need to take Scripture as a whole and consider the context in which it was delivered. For example, how many memes have been posted on the Internet or how many artistic framings of Jeremiah 29.11 can we find at Hobby Lobby without even trying very hard? And have you ever noticed it's almost always in the NIV? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Amen. Amen. But as we approach this text from an interpretive perspective, the question before us is, have we remembered that Jeremiah spoke to Israel's leaders while they were in exile in Babylon? Have we considered that a word spoken to the nation of Israel at a particular point in its history isn't necessarily a personal promise to individual Christians in every situation? And just to be clear, Please hear me now. This illustration in no way is a condemnation of the Hobby Lobby sign you may have hanging in your dining room, okay? We need to surround ourselves with the Word of God. And the sixth principle I want to bring to bear here is beware the temptation to read something into Scripture that isn't there. No meaning may be read into or imposed on Scripture that cannot with certainty be read out of Scripture. Shown, that is, to be unambiguously expressed by one or more of the authors of the Scripture. This is another way of saying that our task as students of the Bible is exegesis and not eisegesis. We need to know that there is, it is very easy to yield to the temptation to force something into the text of Scripture that simply isn't there. We must take care, as Paul wrote the Corinthian church, not to be found walking in craftiness nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And just to help us understand the, the results of this sort of error, to, we will cite one common heresy resulting from Jesus, and we can consider that as we read Philippians 2, chapters 10 and 11, which reads, That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. The Word of God. And yet, 
with some eisegetical gymnastics, this text has been used to teach universalism. That is, the justification, redemption, and salvation of everyone who has ever lived, suggesting that Paul teaches here that everyone will recognize and accept Jesus either before they die or after, and that even in the afterlife, some will get the revelation of Jesus and be inspired by the Holy Ghost to confess his lordship. Eisegesis can have some mighty grave consequences. Can you see what a temptation it might be for a tender-hearted person who struggles with the biblical truth of eternal damnation and God's perfect justice to fall into this eisegetical trap. So then, careful and prayerful observance of these rules is a mark of every Christian who correctly handles the word of truth, as Paul exhorted Timothy. Which brings us now to our third proposition we need to know, and that is the revelation of Scripture is authenticated by the Holy Spirit. So why? Why do Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Sixty-six books forming a single word of instruction in which God has revealed himself to us, the reality of redemption through his Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. The answer is that God himself has confirmed this through what is called the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Once again, the Catechism we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of Holy Scripture. In the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many and other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth of divine and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our heart. The Spirit's witness to Scripture is very much like his witness to Jesus, which we find spoken of in John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, who I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The work of the Spirit here is not a matter of imparting new information, but of enlightening previously darkened minds to discern divinity, divinity through sensing its unique truth. The Spirit shines in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of the glory of God, and not only in the face of Jesus, but also in the teaching of Holy Scriptures. The result of this witness is a state of mind in which both the Savior and the Scriptures have evidenced themselves to us as divine. Jesus, a divine person. Scripture, a divine product. In a way as direct, immediate, and arresting as that which taste and colors evidence themselves by forcing themselves on our senses. In consequence, we no longer find it possible to doubt the divinity of either Christ or the Bible. Thus, God authenticates Holy Scripture to us as his word, not by some mystical experience or secret information privately whispered into our inner ear, not by human argument alone, nor by the church's testimony alone, God does it rather by the means of the Spirit's witness, by 
and with the word in our heart. Argument, testimony from others, and our own particular experiences do indeed often prepare us to receive this witness. But the imparting of it, like the imparting of true saving faith, is the prerogative of the sovereign Holy Spirit alone. The illumination of the Spirit witnessing to the divine inspiration of Scripture is the universal Christian experience, and it has been so from the very beginning. And as we acknowledge that Scripture is God's Word and that we can understand God's Word, and the Word of God is authenticated by His Holy Spirit, we come to this fourth and final proposition, which is God's revelation is authoritative. It is how He governs His people. The Christian principle of biblical authority means, on the one hand, that God purposes to direct the belief and the behavior of his people through the revealed truth set forth in Scripture. And on the other hand, it means that all our ideas about God should be measured, tested, and where necessary, corrected and enlarged by reference to biblical teaching. Authority as such is the right, claim, fitness, and by extension, power to control. Authority in Christianity belongs to God, the Creator, who made us to know, love, and serve Him. And His way of exercising His authority over us is by means of the truth and wisdom of His written Word. Let me say that again. Authority in Christianity belongs to God, the Creator, who made us to know, love, and serve Him. And it is his way of exercising his authority over us by means of the truth and wisdom of his written word. From our standpoint, each biblical book was written to induce more consistent and wholehearted service of God. And therefore, we make it conclude that the entire Bible has this same purpose. Since the Father has now given the Son authority to rule the cosmos on his behalf, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Matthew 28, 18. Scripture now functions precisely as the instrument of Christ's lordship over his followers. All Scripture is like Christ's letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in this regard. So given the confused age in which we live, perhaps the biggest question folks wrestle with is, where and how is God's authoritative truth to be found today? In striving to simplify these into categories, we find three answers are given, and each one appeals to the Bible in its own way. First, the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches find God's truth, as they believe, in the interpretations of Scripture, and that they are embodied, embodied in their own tradition and consensus. They view the Bible as God's given truth, but they insist that the church must interpret it, and it is infallible when it does so. Rome, Rome claims a trifold authority structure, which includes scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. <clears throat> the key component in this trifold authority is the magisterium itself, which is the authoritative teaching office of the Roman Catholic Church, manifested primarily in the Pope. Because the Pope is considered the successor of the Apostle Peter, his official pronouncement or is, are regarded as the very words of God himself. That's one position. Second position, by contrast, individuals which we might identify as liberal, radical, modernist, or subjectivist find God's truth in the thoughts 
impressions, judgments, theories, and speculations that Scripture triggers in their own minds. And just to be clear, there really is no way of getting around this in their own minds, understanding. While dismissing the concept of inspiration of Scripture and not treating their Bible as totally trustworthy or as embodying the absolute and authoritative word from the mind of God, they are confident, nonetheless, that the Spirit leads them to pick and choose in such a way that wisdom from God results. This is a wildly popular approach to seeking authoritative truth in our day and age. If you've read any stories or had any personal life experience of our brothers and sisters deconstructing their faith, they have fallen into this particular error, to this ditch. This is the spark that ignites every would-be guru and self-appointed teacher. And we need to acknowledge that the internet itself provides the perfect platform for the social savvy and charismatically articulate purveyor of this form of truth-seeking. And then there's the third approach, historic Protestantism. And this, however, finds God's truth in the teaching of the canonical scriptures as such. It receives these scriptures as inspired, that is, God-breathed, inerrant, totally true in all they affirm, sufficient, that is, telling us all that God wills to tell us and all that we need to know for salvation and eternal life, and clear, straightforward, and self-interpreting on all matters of importance. The first two positions treat human judgments on the Bible as decisive for truth and wisdom. The third, while valuing the church's heritage of conviction and appreciating the demand for coherence and rational thinking that is involved, systematically submits all human thoughts to Scripture, which takes it seriously, definitively, and ultimately. And this is why we stand so firmly upon the conviction of sola scriptura. The scriptures alone are the word of God, and therefore the only infallible rule for life and doctrine. While we speak much of sola fide, fide, faith alone, and it is regarded as the material cause for the Reformation, it is sola scriptura that is regarded as the formal cause. It is the foundation for everything we do and study here. If we're to make, get any profit at all from this series, we must understand this foundation and understanding of God's Word. God has revealed Himself to His people in and through His Word. Scripture is the Word of God. It is a Word we can understand. He has authenticated His Word by His Holy Spirit, and His Word is the authoritative means whereby He governs His people. And so as we continue this series, this understanding of God's Word serves as the bedrock, the foundation. As we encounter the attributes of God, consider miracles, the created order, the fall, redemption, sacraments, the second coming, the reality of hell, the glory of heaven, and whatever other categories we encounter, we need to know that it's all based on the Word of God. And none of it is helpful apart from this bedrock foundational understanding. We must also remember that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. 
To merely learn about God without it energizing our worship is completely antithetical to this chief end. If you take only one thing away from this message, let it be this. We worship God because he is worthy. We do not worship for any of the results that might come about from our worship. Rather, we do everything else for the results it might have in helping us to glorify God. Worshiping God is not a means to another end. Worshiping God is the highest calling that any human being has. It requires no other justification. Whatever we do, it should drive us to this one great end. Our worship of God is an end unto itself. May God work this truth deeply in the hearts of all his people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we offer our highest thanksgiving for the revelation of yourself in Scripture. Increase our faith, we pray. Increase our hunger for your word and your righteousness. Show us more of yourself as we humbly read and hear your word. Where we err in our understanding of you, where we have been deficient and negligent pursuing the knowledge of you and your word, forgive us and grant us true repentance. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lead us, therefore, we pray. Show us more of your glory. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. And this is our prayer in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.